So with that, BB, uh, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Roberto. First, I'd like to begin by thanking Roberto and the Water for Food Institute for inviting me for this talk. I'm truly grateful. Um, so um, what, when I was asked to decide on what to talk about, I thought that I'll talk about the work that I have been doing in India for the past almost a decade now. Um, so the way I have, um, at the same time, I also thought that giving an introduction of where I come from and my background as a researcher and what are my broad areas of research interest could also be of interest to this uh, audience. So the way then I have uh, organized my presentation is broken it down into three main parts. I very briefly talk about my background as a researcher and broad areas of research interest. Then I spend the maximum uh, amount of time talking about or rather weaving a storyline about one particular piece of research that I have been doing in West Bengal that then led to a policy change in the state. And finally, I also talk somewhat briefly on research that I have been doing in other geographical locations on other issues apart from groundwater. So that is the way I'm hoping to proceed. And I, I mean, it's okay with me if I'm interrupted in between for questions. So I don't know if, if that's the way we do it here, but, but I'm fine with being stopped and asked questions in the way. And if I become incoherent in between, I think you can also interrupt, and it could be because of jet lag. So far, I'm feeling yeah. fine, but <laughs> just in case, yeah. Uh, so um, my background as a researcher, I have now been working for 13 years, mostly uh, exclusively in international and regional intergovernmental organizations. I started working in the CGIR system, and I assume many of, this, of you in this room are aware what the CGIR system is is the Consultative Group on International Agricultural Research. So I spent the first year working um, as a research assistant at ICRISAT. Then I moved on to International Water Management Institute, which is uh, based in Sri Lanka, and then moved on to a National South to International Postdoc as a senior researcher. I stayed there from 2001 to 2013. In between, I left for my PhD for three years. And then very recently, I have joined an intergovernmental organization called ECMO, this Integrated Center for International Mountain Development, where we look at uh, development in the Himalayan states. And our mandate is to work in eight Hindu-Kush Himalayan countries. Uh, in, in throughout my research career, I have collaborated with, uh, done research projects with World Bank, ADB, ISAD, and FAO, uh, and then collaborated with scientists from other CG centers like International Rice Research Institute and World Fish, and also work with university faculty and students from mostly from the south, from say Ethiopia, Sudan, as well as Bangladesh and India. And also some from the north, I have collaborated on a long-term basis with some hydrogeologists from Spain. And uh, yeah, so that's about it. Um, my main areas of research interest are groundwater in that I have been specifically looking at how do policies and institutions affect uh, use of groundwater in South Asia. Uh, and with a special focus on how does it get affected by energy policies, how does it get affected by groundwater laws, and uh, how does water, energy, and food come together in the form of a nexus. That is, I think, the biggest chunk of my research has been in that. 
In addition, I have also looked at participatory irrigation management. That traditionally used to be a big mandate of International Water Management Institute to look at to turning over irrigation schemes to farmers. I have looked at that and my findings have been most of the time it doesn't work as well as it was expected. So I have spent some time looking at that in community-based water management. And then uh, recently, I would say like some three or four years back, I got a grant from uh, International Initiative for Impact Evaluation, 3IE. For many economists, that might be a known quantity. They are a funding agency that gives grants for rigorous impact evaluation. So I have got very interested in the field of impact evaluation, looking at why does the intervention work and why it works and why it doesn't. So those are, I would think, the three main uh, areas of my work. So uh, I, my research approach, if I were to sum, up, sum it up in single slide, I would think it has been eclectic with mixed methods and interdisciplinary problem-solving approach. So I am trained as a human geographer, so that kind of equips me to look at, at kind of this triangle in between is the area of my work. I look at resource characteristics, in the case of groundwater, that's how is the groundwater aquifer, how does it behave. Then I look at the policies, institutions, and the politics around this allocation. And then I also try to understand Marcus technology and, and the socioeconomic issues around it. So uh, to sum up, my training as a geographer has helped me to do policy-relevant research at the intersection of resource characteristics, as I said, policies, institutions, and markets in an attempt to explain spatial variation in resources. So that is, I think, briefly a description of my research interest and where I'm coming from. After this, I'm going to take you through my research in West Bengal, India, on groundwater and irrigation issues. These are the research, this research I have been doing since 2002. So last evening when I was putting my PowerPoint together, I was thinking what could be a good way of presenting that, and I finally decided on a chronological order of why I did, how the research developed over time. So I think that's what I'll, I'll do now. Um, I'm sorry the fonts are too, too small here, but uh, overall this is the chronology I'll, I'll talk about, so I wouldn't really read everything that's here. But uh, the fact, the, what I wanted to say here, that this is a particular strand of research that I've been doing for the past 10, 11 years. And obviously, if you've been doing a research on a topic for so long, what happens is new topics, subtopics come, you know, emerge while you are doing it. So in this chronology, I'm kind of uh, trying to say what are those different things. I'll just come to that. So it all started when I joined as a, as a junior consultant at International Water Management Institute. And the, one of the first tasks that I, I did was to design a survey of well and tubal owners in, in South Asia. It was already well known that South Asia depends overwhelmingly on groundwater resources for its irrigation, but uh, there was this gap in literature. Nobody knew what was the characteristics of those farmers. How were they different from farmers who use surface water irrigation? What kind of crops did the farmers grow? What kind of constraints did they face? So one of the things that I did was to design a survey, and this survey was then administered in uh, India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and Nepal. And uh, this was the first time when I actually understood it, put in perspective the contrast between groundwater economies in two parts of South Asia. 
So there were parts of South Asia that were very much water scarce. And that was the part that everybody was talking about. So that was kind of quite well documented. But then what the survey showed was there were also parts of South Asia which were relatively water abundant. These were Eastern India, Nepal, and Bangladesh. So the issues that the parts of water scarcity faced were very different from the issues in the water abundant part. So, so that kind of set me on the future trail of research. So quite a few publications uh, resulted from that and, and, and because they were early and because I think they were filling a very important gap, these remain one of the most cited articles of mine. And uh, yeah, so I was still using my name before marriage. So some of my citations are in a different name. So they don't show up in Google Scholar, unfortunately. I haven't been able to fix how do you make sure your two names turn up. So anyway, so, so those are some of the articles that I see have been very often cited by others because they really draw the big picture and they kind of talk about the differences. Uh, then uh, that got me interested looking into groundwater. That was, a, I thought, a very good start to a young person's career looking at a big picture to begin with. Um, so what it really turned out was there has been a very rapid increase in area under groundwater irrigation. And the reasons were uh, unreliable supply of public irrigation systems, but even more importantly, high population density and small land holdings. Small land holdings meant that farmers in most of India had to grow two or even three crops just to survive. And no other source of water allowed you to intensify your cropping as much as groundwater did because it was available on time, you know, at your disposal. So that to me has been one of the major drivers of groundwater use in India, small size holdings and high population density. Just the imperative to feed your family is what triggered groundwater use in the region. And then what was also important was subsidized electricity. Much of India, but not all, as my research showed, offered farmers highly subsidized irrigation as a way to trigger green revolution. India, I mean, all of you know that in the 1970s, in the late 1960s, was almost declared as a basket case of no food scarcity and then green revolution happened. So one of the things that government did was to encourage farmers to move to um, high yielding varieties was through subsidizing electricity. So this led to increase in electric farms. Uh, it increased contribution of groundwater to agriculture and also benefited millions of poor. So what I now have are a series of graphs, but it really shows that I think if I drew this graph for Bangladesh, it looks exactly the same. If I draw this graph for, for uh, Pakistan, it looks somewhat similar, not exactly the same. Bangladesh, India, China, they all follow. This is what is happening. This is our mitigated area in hectares. And area under tanks and canals have either remained stagnant or even declined in some years, while there has been a kind of a, yeah, yeah, growth, exponential growth in area under groundwater irrigation. So this is common all throughout South Asia. Then uh, I recently got these figures made. These are some of my favorite graphics. I really like them. What they denote is every dot here denotes 5,000 wells and wells. So India conducts what is called a minor irrigation census. And groundwater is minor irrigation. So that gives you the number of wells and wells. 
And this has been done since 1987. So we have had four censuses so far. So we, I just plotted these numbers. And so in 1987, India had 6.2 million welcome tubers. If you go to 1994, that increased to 11.5 million. Uh, so each dot is 5,000. Then if you go to 2001, then there were 18.5 million welcome tubers. And then the last census was in 2007. Then there were 19.7 million welcome tubers. No other country in the world has this many number of bells and tubers. So this kind of puts India at a, you know, almost a different league altogether. The numbers are staggering. I mean, 20 million bells and tubers. And that brings interesting questions. However, what my work showed was there was stark regional divide. For example, these are the states at some point I, uh, of those who are aware of the map of India, it should be fine, but I'll also show where these states are. So Punjab is in north, Punjab, Haryana are like northern part of India, Gujarat is west and Tamil Nadu is south. So all these areas share certain characteristics. All these states have overexploited this groundwater. So there is more groundwater use than there is recharge. There is low rainfall and the regions also have low rainfall and low natural recharge. All these areas have majority of the farms of electric farms because of electricity policies and also because water tables have gone down to such an extent that nothing but electric farm would work. Uh, they also offer free to very low flat tariff rate. Electricity is either free or charged at a flat tariff irrespective of hours of pumping. And uh, obviously all these two factors mean that there is a high fiscal deficit due to electricity subsidy to farmers. West Bengal in the east, and then there's Dr. Chittaranjan who is from Orissa, which is also in east. So West Bengal, Orissa, Bihar, Assam, these are the eastern states, they share a different characteristic. Here groundwater is underdeveloped, only 42% of the groundwater is actually used. There is very high rainfall and therefore high recharge. These are alluvial aquifers. Very little is electrified. It has, it charges farmers highest flat rate and now there is also meter in West Bengal and almost no electricity subsidy to farmers. So these were some of the differences I that got me really interested. So so I, I explained the same through maps. So so this would be Punjab, Haryana, Gujarat, so all the red, this would be Tamil Nadu. So all the reds are uh, overexploited areas and this is West Bengal. Then this is Bihar and Assam, Orissa. So these are all uh, kind of uh, safe and semi-critical, so low groundwater use. In West Bengal, there is high groundwater potential, 42% is used, and less than 10% of the blocks are critical, none are overexploited. Um, then also, if you look at depth of water table, we find that this is the data for uh, 20 years that we got from the state groundwater department. The water table depth, the maximum is here, like more than 12 meters. But then this is before pre-monsoon and after post-monsoon, there is a very heavy recovery in water table because these are, most of the places, it's uh, it's kind of connected to the uh, river system. So there is a high recovery of the water table. Um, then I already said electric pump sets are very few. So this is a number that the Central Electricity Authority of India gives about the potential of electrification and only one-fifth of that potential has been met in. Um, West Bengal. Similarly, therefore, electricity subsidy is low. 
partly due to low number of electric fuses, but also high tariff. And West Bengal also has one of the highest flat tariffs. So these were uh, the different um, tariffs for horsepower of pumps, and West Bengal had one of the highest. And West Bengal also happens to be the only state where farmers require a permit from groundwater department before drilling a well. And without a permit, they did not get electricity connections. I'll come more to this groundwater law aspect later on. So what kind of triggered my uh, curiosity was why such difference in policies when one would assume that one would restrict groundwater access in areas of overexploitation and would have more pro-development policies in areas of underdevelopment. And uh, at that point, I found a rather useful framework for analysis of framework that economists often use is called the political ecology, where it looks at how political struggles over access to natural resources done and how this struggle in turn is shaped by existing power relations. Uh, so using that framework, what I, uh, what I found was there could be three main reasons for such differences. One is a weak farmer lobby in West Bengal. In West Bengal for the longest time has been ruled by the Communist Party of India. Uh, and they had, a, they had an internal party mechanism that made sure that farmers' lobbies were co-opted by the... So, you know, communist parties have their politburos and there is this internal democracy, which means that even if you differ with the leadership, you don't really go and express that dissent outside that closed boardroom or politburo. So they had a way of making sure that the farmers' voices were never really, you know, took, took a shape. And then there was also something happened with high political influence of the urban intelligentsia. I was just discussing, I think, before lunch about how in Bengal, the, the land revenue system that the British had made sure that it created a generations of absentee landlords. So these absentee landlords would move to the city and basically lead a good life with very little rural interest, except that they wanted the rent to come to them at specified time of the year. So the real, the, there was a steep rural-urban disconnect, which you wouldn't find in other places like Gujarat, where one brother could work in, be a farmer, and another could be working in the electricity department. So, which means that there was a there was a connect. So, uh, so yeah. So I'm just trying to sum it up. There is and more to that argument. And uh, I I really like the paper I published on this, and I. I have no hesitation in saying that I like this particular piece of work that I did way back in 2005-06. I think I was still doing my PhD at that time. Um, okay, so th th that also uh, triggered this query, can the groundwater policies be changed? Can those policies help the poor? Uh, and it kind, of, uh, it kind of makes a lot of sense because these eastern Indian states also have very high rural poverty. For example, in West Bengal alone, there are 21.4 million rural poor, of which 84% live in rural areas. So can groundwater irrigation be deployed for poverty alleviation in a sustainable way? So that was the question that triggered my next round of research. After understanding why the policies were different, I wanted to see how could we go about changing those policies or influence change. So much of what I did in my PhD was uh, there was a lot of literature talking about a way of providing access to farmers for informal water market. So not everybody needs to invest in wells and tube wells. You could also buy water from your neighbor. 
So that is how I, uh, that is what I did for my PhD. I looked at informal groundwater markets as a way of providing irrigation access. And this is a very interesting data that is available from National Sample Survey Organization of India. It shows that these Eastern Indian states of Bihar, West Bengal, and Uttar Pradesh, in West Bengal, for example, 67%, that is two thirds of the rural households, farming households, said that they hire irrigation services from their neighbors, which means that water markets or informal water markets were a very important way of getting access. So what I looked at was uh, where these markets work, what were the institutions, how was the prices determined, uh, what determined the amount of profit that the farmers were making, so on and so forth. So those were some of the things. So what came out most interesting in the study was looking at motive power of pump. And by motive power, I mean, what is it that is running the pump? Is it electricity or is it diesel? And that turned out to be the one most important determinant of how the market works. So basically, electricity, electric pumps were cheaper to operate because of electricity tariffs were lower than diesel prices. And also at that time, West Bengal had a flat electricity regime. So irrespective of the number of hours you pump, you still pay the flat rate. But that flat rate was set at a very high amount. So for most farmers who were small and marginal farmers, paying that amount of flat rate did not really make economic sense. So they always had this incentive to sell water to others and to recover their electricity bill. So that was one of the things that was happening. So what I found was electric pump owners under flat rate tariff were more likely to sell water services. So we kind of did some logic regression and it turned out that if you have an electric pump, then you are most likely to sell water. Then electric pump owners also sell longer number of hours of irrigation than diesel pump owners. That also we did some regression to find that if you have an electric pump, you, are, you would sell almost 800, 900 hours more of uh, your hours of uh, water than you would if you had a diesel pump. We also found electric pump owners sell water at a lower price because, well, their costs were lower. And as I mentioned, high flat rate moves terms of transactions in favor of water buyers, making it a buyer's market. The buyers knew that the sellers were under a compulsion to sell just to recover their electricity costs. So the buyers always got better terms and conditions. So um, I, I'll come a bit more to that. Yeah, so I think I don't need to go there. Yeah. What are the characteristics of the diesel market? Is it subsidized or is it uh, or market so, prices or what? So diesel prices are subsidized, but still it turns out to be almost five to six times higher than per unit cost of pumping would be five to six times higher than it would be for electricity. So electricity is yeah almost like near the market cost, but diesel even with subsidy turns out to be much more expensive. Yeah. So these water transfers are physical transfer of water, yes. not Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A ditch and a pipe. Or it could also be uh, you, you take, if it's a diesel pump, the, the water buyer can take the pump to his field and then pay the rent for the pump and pump water. So, yeah, so it, it's kind of. And then there were, there could be markets for the pump, there could be markets for the pipes, and there could be, yeah, so it, it's kind of all. Markets for the well. Markets for the well, yes. 
But if it were electric, then because the electric pump is fixed to the well, it's just market for water. And then the crop price, the prices also differ. It could be an hourly price. It could be a contract over the season. So I, I, that is what. So this, in my thesis, I argued for electrification of tubers and continuation of flat rate that resulted in number of publications, plus this paper based on this work. So there is something called the Global Development Network. So they hold an annual research paper competition. And so this paper was uh, judged one that won a award. So, so that was kind of the work that I was doing then. I have been following up. So that was the work I did in 2004 and following up. Then while I was in the field, I realized in 2007 that government of West Bengal had started a program of metering electric tubers. Yeah. The argument was that under a flat rate tariff, there was it was inducing competition in the water market because uh, because um, farmers have this objective of recovering their electricity bill, and just self irrigation was not enough because farm sizes were very small to justify paying ten thousand rupees a year. So so that way they were almost forced to sell water to water buyers, and that was the justification. And I, I would later say that I would eventually change my position when I understand more of the energy side of the issue. Because uh, later on, it did seem inevitable that metering would be the way to go. Because while flat tariff might be good for water markets, it was doing a terrible damage to the energy auditing. So, so that is yeah, one of the things I have turned my entire position around. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to do that because my evidence told me that it's time to change your views. So it was okay. So in 2007, I found that government of West Bengal started a program of metering of electric tubers. So it was timely at that time at EMI, I was running a program where we were trying to uh, sensitize hydrogeologists about the social aspects of water, social and economic aspects of water. So there were this bunch of uh, young hydrogeologists who are groundwater department officials who were with us. We had them for like six months to sensitize and they were like the ready, you know, people to go into the field and collect more evidence. So we kind of, we went, did another round of more like qualitative field work this time. Uh, so with local groundwater officials and then, uh, so at that time extent of metering was still low, sorry. It was still low. It had just started. So we did not really have enough of treatment to do a proper impact evaluation. So what we did was a ex-ante impact evaluation of possible impacts. Uh, so I'll just come to what I mean by that. Before that, I wanted to say about a bit of the intervention. So in the metering of tubers, what the government did was introduction of time of the day meters. Not only meters, but time of the day meters. It was a demand management tool. So if you pump during the peak hours, you pay a lot more than if you pump at non-peak hours. So this was very sophisticated given India where even metering is politically unacceptable. And then at the same time, if you, so metering was not a choice. Everybody had to get metered. Farmers were not given a choice. But what was happening, the pace of metering was slow because of procurement issues, because the government did not have you know, money at the same time to invest. So that was slow. So at the same time, while there was metering, 
people who not, had not been metered continued on the flat rate system. So that kind of gave us a good opportunity later on. Again, the electricity meters, I think I was talking with somebody this morning and then we talked about, uh, I was talking to Dr. Ray this morning about tamper-proof COD meters. So you see the meters were uh, quite put quite above the ground so that farmers can't really tamper with it. And if they try to tamper, uh, so these were also read by uh, automatic meter reading instruments. So the meter reader couldn't tamper with it. And also if anybody tried to tamper, apparently uh, uh, SMS will go to the commercial office. So it was pretty high tech. Um, yeah, so that's just a picture. Um, so the ex-ante impact evaluation which we did in 2007 was before the metering happened like more widely. So we did not really have enough counterfactual to do a proper exposed one. So what we did was we very narrowly defined our um, our uh, impact under assuming that there would be no change in hours of pumping and we used our data from 2004 and that we assumed that the main motive for selling water is to recover the electricity bill. Accordingly, we define that if pump owners, they kind of lose out if they pay higher electricity bill for same number of hours as before. And if they pay lower electricity bill, they gain. And for water buyers, they lose out if they pay higher price for buying same amount of water. And by this definition, and the more, more details are in the paper, we found that pump owners were largely winners because with the same hours of pumping, they were paying lesser electricity bill, same hour of selling, water, higher revenue. So, so we kind of, it was a behavioral change. So for all of a sudden from a flat tariff, it was more like a marginal cost pricing, which meant that right as a water seller, now I have the option. If I don't sell water, I just switch off my pump and I pay only as much I have used. So that earlier compulsion of selling water to others was kind of no longer there. So, so that could be one of the reasons. We found immediately after metering in some of the villages where we did quick qualitative field study, immediately after metering there was an increase in water charges by 30 to 50% because farmers were not sure how much bill they are going to get under the new system. So they kind of hedged that by immediately raising prices saying that now that government has metered, they are going to get a higher electricity bill. While the truth was they were actually getting lower electricity bill than before because the unit rates were worked in such a way that they were lower than the flat tariff rates. So yeah. And then what would happen to groundwater markets? We could not quite gauge from that study because it really depends on the motivation of the water seller. If pump owners only want to recover their bills, then maybe groundwater markets would contract. But if they also wanted to make additional profit, then it may expand. So that kind of needed more data. So we could not do it in this study. So, but I was conscious that this ex-ante impact evaluation was severely limited in scope because we were making some pretty, um, I think, uh, yeah, stern kind of uh, assumptions that there would be no change in pumping hours because we did not have data of how they changed. So we were, I was conscious that we needed to do more. So we were looking for funding for more of an exposed rigorous evaluation. And then uh, uh, like a group of three of us, two economists from Delhi School of Economics and I, we came together and we applied for a competitive grant from 3IE and we were successful and it enabled us to do another round of surveys in 2010 to understand the impact. Um, and then in that survey, um, I don't know if I want to read it all through, but 
what happened was I said that metering had started and we had already done our baseline survey in 2004 when everybody was under flat tariff. Then when we go, went back in 2007, some people had been metered and some were still in flat tariff. So that gave us a good experimental, a quasi-experimental design of doing a difference in different study. Obviously, metering was not randomized, so, so there were those design challenges. I mean, metering did not happen in a randomized way, but yeah, there, there it was. I mean, we then did some extra controls to see if the characteristics of the metered villages versus non-metered villages were similar or not, and they turned out to be similar. So overall, we used difference in difference estimate. These were all the locations where our villages were, so it was spread over all over West Bengal. Some 950 farmers, so we, we were able to create a, a panel uh, of farmers interviewing them. Um, then I can skip this. Then we uh, calculated double difference. Uh, basically, uh, so the double difference is so you have a one group which was metered, which was not metered in 2004 and is now metered in. 2010. So you take the difference in pumping between them. On the other hand, you have another group that was not metered in 2004 and is still not metered in 2007, 2010. So you take the difference between those two groups. And then the difference between those two differences is our interest. So that way we are saying that you can attribute that difference only to metering and not to other reasons. So that being the reasoning in simple terms. Um, what we found was that the only difference, only significant differences came up in these three variables, which was hours of pumping in the summer, hours used for irrigating own farm in summer, and hours sold to others in summer. These were the only three coefficients, and summer was important because that is the time when the most water-intensive crops are grown. That happens to be a paddy called Boro paddy locally. So, the differences were found only in summer, but not in the other seasons. The findings from this study was, as I said, statistically significant impact of metering is only seen in the summer season, uh, and significantly reduced hours of sold. I mean, the amount that is you reduce pumping both for yourself and also amount you're selling to others, but what you are selling to others has been reduced more than your own use. So there was some kind of negative impact on water buyers. No impact in the other two seasons, no change in cropping pattern, crop productivity. Interestingly, no change, no significant difference in difference between water prices either. So on all other things, it was kind of insignificant. So overall, uh, impact of metering were not as severe as our ex ante study had suggested. And the reason being, I think, was a lot of social pressure that works in the village context. You have been selling water to your neighbor for years, and just because there is a meter, you just can't stop overnight. There are social pressures. You, you seem to be the bad guy if you're not providing water anymore. So this final study is now available on 3IE website. Okay, so uh, that brings me to the last bit of the work that I've been doing since then. So if metering was not that bad, then how come what was happening in West Bengal, number of groundwater wells was still declining in absolute numbers. While you see in India as a whole number of wells has been increasing. So if you look at these four censuses, like in the third census that is around 2001, West Bengal had around 650,000 wells and tubers. It had come down to 520,000. So there was like, you know, going down. 
So my research, so this is also the same graph showing the eastern states, not only West Bengal, but entire eastern states were sh showing an absolute decline in number of wells and tubes. So that kind of prompted me to ask the question, why? Because that was quite contrary to the national trend. These were also the regions that had a lot of water. So you don't think that it was because of water over exploitation. The results were quite predictable. Area under the summer paddy, that is the most productive crop in West Bengal, because summer is the time when there is less weather-related disturbances and crop yields are higher. Summer crops were area under summer crops were reducing. This was reflected in declining rate of growth of paddy production. If you can see this area, paddy production is actually slumping. So the main impediment that our research found was basically the higher high cost of irrigation through diesel. It was the lack of electrification. To give some perspective, West Bengal had only 15% of his pumps which were electrified. And in the meanwhile, diesel costs had been increasing very faster than the cost of outputs cost of paddy prices. So in, in some of my papers, I, I show how this, this is what we call energy squeeze, how farmers' profits are being squeezed because of high diesel prices. So a solution could have been, um, could have been more electricity connections, but instead of more electricity connections, these are the number of electricity connections each year from 1979 to 2008. Instead of more electricity connections, we found that the government of West Bengal had almost stopped issuing new electricity connections. And the reasons were farmers were required to get a permit and then pay full capital cost of electrification. So this was where I said that I'll talk about the Groundwater Act a little bit. So Groundwater Act of 2005 required that farmers take prior permit from authorities before they can apply for an electricity connection. In theory, this looked like, like a sensible act, but what was happening in practice was farmers had to come all the way to the state capital and they had to provide all kinds of papers and it led to a lot of unnecessary administrative hassles and rent seeking. And more interestingly even, this instrument was supposed to, sorry, this instrument was supposed to check, say these are the, some of the districts with very blue other levels of groundwater use. So these are some of the districts with very high levels of groundwater use. We would expect that most of the permits to be rejected in these districts, but that was not exactly happening. What was happening right at the rejected permits? What was happening was districts with very little groundwater use. What the districts where a lot of those permits were being rejected. And the reason was the Groundwater Act did not really specify any objective criteria for rejecting of permits. It was almost left to the personal discrimination of the hydrogeologists. And some thought that their job was to preserve groundwater. And therefore, they were almost uniformly rejecting permits. So that was one of the reasons. And then there was also rent seeking and corruption. Later, it turned out a lot of the officials were yeah, simply taking bribes. And we see that shows not uniformly rejecting. Yeah. There, there would be. There would be so so there was no like no direct pattern like this district Nadia this one had a particular officer who who thought and who saw that water tables were recuperating after the monsoon so he kept giving more permits but then you're right I mean it's not exactly a 
like one-to-one -one correlation. But even then, in these districts, you would have thought there would have been more, you know, permits that would have been given. But nearly 100% were kind of being rejected. So that was one of the things. Um, so, um, so yeah, so it, it so happened that in September 2011, a new government came in and we were able to communicate this to the chief minister. And we recommended two changes. One was system of permits be done away with. And farmers were given one-time capital cost subsidy for installation of electric pumps. Farmers were required to pay for transformers, poles, and wires, which was a lot of capital investment at one point. So the suggestion was give them one-time capital cost subsidy, but then you can slowly recover that through tariff revision, because tariffs could be upwardly revised. Um, both were accepted. Then an executive order was passed that farmers who are in the safe block with pumps of five horsepower or less uh, will not, no longer require a prior permission from the groundwater department. With this and with the other, uh, like the farmers could get the electricity connection for a fixed payment, but they had to continue paying the meter. So the running costs were not subsidized. It was the capital cost that was subsidized. So with those two, those were done. So that kind of interest, that kind of generated a lot of policy bias and sense. Um, I think it's not very usual, at least in India, for research to feed directly into policy. So that was uh, something I thought was uh, pretty unusual, and a lot of others thought it was unusual too, but there were reasons there was a new government who were willing for a change. The new government came after 34 years, you know, of the same government. So there were a lot of things that were happening that made this change possible. So I think this was the work that helped me, that, that was the why I got this inaugural prize that um, yeah, Roberto mentioned. And we were together at the ceremony last year. So this year it's a Kenyan woman who has won this award. So that was nice too. So, so I think that that was the work, the policy influence work, that research fed directly into policy and as a result policy was changed. And then uh, very recently... Were there any, um, are, are there any impacts on increased use of wells on Oh, the answer is right now, I don't know, but that is something we have to be looking at. I know a group of my colleagues at EME, they are uh, doing hydrological modeling to look into that aspect. So that is something that is being done. And what I'm trying to monitor is, uh, so we are waiting for government data. The groundwater department was not too happy with me because the permit system went away with that, some of their power went away. So I've been finding a little difficult to get the data, but I'm trying to invoke, there's something called Right to Information Act. So I might, I, I'll get that data eventually. So I've been uh, trying to look at what is happening to groundwater in those areas. So, uh, so then very recently we got the data from the electricity department who have been very cooperative and sharing very disaggregated data with us which will allow us to do very interesting work in the future. So we were looking, so this is the time at the end of 2011 when the act was changed. And these were the number of electric connections that were being given earlier. There were some temporary connections and permanent connections. So right after the act change, you can see that there has been a huge number of new connections that are being given. And I think the research emphasis that I have now is to see what is the impact of those. I mean, so many new tubers coming in. How does it affect water tables? 
how does it affect agricultural production? And when we did a disaggregated district-wise, uh, we found that most of these connections were being given in two districts. And those two districts were also politically quite relevant. One was a Maoist-affected district. There are these Maoist rebels, you know, not too happy. And so the government was trying to give more electric connections to farmers. And then one was a particularly sensitive North Bengal district, which also has been traditionally very neglected. So those have been also spatially very unique. So yeah, so we have been, so this is something that we are trying to get agricultural data, trying to get groundwater data. And then my colleagues also did a survey of 1500 households to look at the uh, primary impact. Um, but while the number of connections drastically improved, what we also found was there is a huge gap between the connections that are being demanded. Remember that farmers were not getting new connections for one and a half decades. So there was such a pent up demand in the market that the amount of connections, these are the amount of connections that farmers are demanding now. The government has not been able to fulfill even half of the requirement. And part of the reason is lack of dedicated budget for electrification. So that is one of the reasons. So this is an ongoing work that we are hoping to get the data and write something up to be quickly about it. Um, then I, uh, I'll very quickly go through this, but I'm happy to answer. Yeah. Yeah, I think there are certain, yeah, I, I haven't looked that carefully into it, but we could find that the lowest electricity unit, they call it a group supply office, which is equivalent to a block, which is one of the lowest administrative units. So there is a high variation. Some blocks are giving more electricity connection and some are giving very little. And that is one of the things that we have in the back of our mind that we need to figure out why that is happening. Uh, but overall, almost 75% of the new connections have gone to only five districts out of 18 districts. And uh, of that, 40% of maybe 50% have gone to just two districts that I mentioned. So there are few spatial kind of blocks that are being given. But what I understand is most farmers seem to think that the process was being fair. There is a public list of who is a priority. So so that list is being followed. So, so every group supply office would publicly list that this is the waiting list. And then people know that, you know, how many people they have before them and after them. So that has been, I thought, quite good. Then when you work on groundwater in Eastern India, then a big question that I have faced in every seminar, and I assume I would also face here, is what do you do about arsenic? And that is a very important question because these areas are naturally arsenic prone. So, but then I don't specialize in that particular one, but because I thought that because my research was looking into this, I should do something to understand the problem better. So what I did with a with a intern of mine who is now a graduate student at UC Davis, we looked at all the studies that had a good quality studies with good counterfactual and you know good evidence to look at two questions. One is oops, sorry. One is impact of using arsenic-rich water on crop health and uptake. So we found 27 studies uh, of that, and we, we looked at these issues about what does arsenic do to 
crop yields, it almost always reduces crop yields, what does it, how is it uptaken by grains and how it accumulates in soil. But even more importantly, my interest has been in mitigation. There is arsenic and to suggest that farmers don't irrigate is not a you know, good public policy prescription because farmers would irrigate. So I think the focus needs to be on mitigation. And we found that there were a lot of experiments that have been done, mostly greenhouse experiments, field experiments, that shows the changes in water management practices could help, like less flood irrigation, more controlled irrigation, then soil remediation and fertilization. Even balanced doses of NPK can go a long way in ensuring that crops do not take up arsenic. Then cooking methods, traditional cooking methods are washing the rice till it's clean and then cooking the rice in extra water and throwing out that water. In that process, you do lose uh, some amount of nutrition, but you also, the arsenic leaches out if it were already in the grain. So that works. Then what Bangladesh is doing quite effectively is breeding arsenic tolerant rice. So these are rice varieties who do not take up arsenic in their grain. Then there is also some work looking at can we grow alternative crops, crops that require less water instead of paddy. And then another work I think the Bangladesh is doing rather well is to the nutritionally poor people, they're providing nutritional supplements like folate and iron that apparently reduces absorption of arsenic. So this is a review paper that is under review in agricultural water management and hopefully it will be published soon. So I don't know if I have any more time and should I talk in other locations or um, I could just... Maybe you want to go very, very quickly on that. Okay. Um, I think we had just <coughs> but about five minutes before some people may need to Okay. So I'll very quickly go. Some of the other work that I've been doing is research in the Nile Basin. Particularly, uh, I worked with a student from University of Gazira in Sudan and we looked at how and why did Gazira want the largest centralized irrigation scheme in Africa change over the decade. So this was basically the cotton that went all the way to England to feed its cotton industry. And over the years, Gazira has now become mostly a food grain growing area with a, with a centralized irrigation system that's almost falling apart, has been informalized. Um, so this work found that farmers responded to changing institutions, specifically changed market conditions. So earlier government would buy up the entire cotton, progressively the government practically stopped doing so and that was one of the major. So this paper kind of delineates all the four stages of changes in government policies vis-a-vis -vis cotton. So that is what this study was looking at. Um, then in Central Asia, uh, we briefly looked at in a region crisscrossed by canals, who relies on groundwater and why? Uh, because it does not seem like one of those areas where there would be much groundwater use, but it turned out that there was a lot of groundwater use, something that was kind of falling through everybody's radars because everybody was concentrated on the large scale canal use. And we found that much of the groundwater use was being at the kitchen garden by farmers. So in, in Central Asia, you have a farm where you grow cotton or wheat, which is more or less bought by the state. And then you have your small kitchen gardens, which is the cash crop. You grow, you know, cucumbers and tomatoes and watermelons. So that is your source of cash, mostly. So, so that is why there was absolute proliferation of, uh, of uh, electric and diesel motors. 
And what helped was we understood the value change of food containing tables, availability of cheap Chinese farms, as well as shallow groundwater tables was what was kind of helping them. Then I did some work looking at irrigation management transfer in Asia, which was a study of uh, systematic review of 108 documented cases of participatory irrigation management. And I think the conclusion were rather discouraging showing that participatory irrigation management fails more often than it succeeds. So that is another theme that I would like to uh, work more on, you know, why after so many decades of investment, what's, what's happening. So we have a paper that is right now under review. Um, and so one of the main reasons seems to be deferred maintenance. Nobody wants to invest in maintenance of those schemes. So there was a project that I was leading in Bangladesh where deferred maintenance became one of the major stumbling blocks. So you would have a donor who would come and rehabilitate a system and hand it over to farmers expecting that the farmers would maintain that system. But in reality that does not happen. So the system which requires minor uh, change minor rehabilitation. If you don't rehab, if you don't do those minor maintenance, those minor maintenance becomes major maintenance. And after 10 years, you have another donor money coming in. So we talked about you know perverse incentives. And one of the ideas that we floated with the government was to create something called a donor government trust fund, where when the loan comes, each of the donors kind of put a, put together a pot of money along with the government of Bangladesh. And then each of the separate, we looked at postal embankments for folders. Each of the folder community gets a certain chunk of regular maintenance fund so that they don't have to depend on, you know, irregular funds. And so that was one of the idea that has been, I have been told is been under active consideration of the planning commission of Bangladesh because it also, yeah. So common thread that ties it all is, I think my research is mostly followed, but I call a problem-solving approach. Was the problem how does it affect people's lives and livelihoods, and what are the practical implementable solutions? And I'm also trying to bring evidence. Where is the evidence? Why do people do what they do? And that has involved intensive fieldwork and data collection. Then uh, much of my research is always asked the so what question. Yes, these are our findings. But so what? What does it mean? What does it mean for policy? What does it mean for impact? And the policy influence approach, I think, we actively trying to take these these findings to policymakers. So these, I think, would be. So what really, like, I, I think human beings and institutions respond to incentives. Understanding those incentives and suggesting ways of influencing human behavior through appropriate policies, I think, lies at the heart of my research so far. So that has been. So, uh, so these are some of the publications, right? Um, plans for future research, I think, continue with the work that I've been doing in West Bengal. So now we have a very good four rounds of longitudinal data from 2004 to 2013. So that's a very rich data set that can be used very productively. I think one of the things I really liked about the conference when I came in May was the fieldwork that we did and, and so nicely explained the water problems in Nebraska and I could find so many parallels and I think understand and analyzing the groundwater and surface water management in Nebraska and surrounding states could be something that I would be potentially interested in. Continue to work on water food energy mixers and look closely at new developments in public irrigation systems in India and China because both these countries have heavily invested in public irrigation systems which now lie in state of disrepair. 
why and what can be done would be something I'm very interested in. So this is where I live and this is my family, my husband and my two dogs. With that, thank you. We have a groundwater well. We are not <laughs> so we have our own well. My work directly led to a change in Groundwater Act, which now allows farmers to get access to groundwater, which they earlier did not get. So I am now going back to those very same farmers and then looking at their crop economics, and I will follow them for a while, hopefully. And that, at that point in time, it looked like this is what was needed. Maybe there would a time would come when I think what's happening if there are too many groundwater wells coming up in only one district, then that has to be communicated that that is leading to drawdown of water tables in that particular district. And, and that is possible because personally in my case with the kind of contact that I have built, at this point I can pick up the phone and talk to the water resources secretary of the state and what, what I was pleasantly surprised is that many of these bureaucrats are actually looking for data and actually looking for somebody to tell them what's going right and what's not going right, particularly in this particular bureaucrat. So, so I, I think the answer to that would be continuous monitoring to keep seeing if it's going in the right direction or not and providing the feedback to the government. But we wouldn't know for 100%. Yes, we do that. Yes, yes. So, so we we actually told them. We actually gave them even what is the groundwater potential and how many new wells could come up by each block. And we said that if so much new area is brought under cultivation or uh, so much area is devoted to this particular crop, then this could be the additional income to farmers. But what we have not, I have not yet been able to do is to look at the impact on drawdown of water table. So, so the more you know, indirect impacts is something that I think I don't yet have as good a handle on. Yeah. If um, if you do see drawbacks now that you don't accelerate permits, mm -hmm. uh, do you have enough information from who is giving money to to help as well to be able to know who is irrigating and how many acres they're irrigating? Um, so the, that data, there are two sources of that. We could do primary representative surveys, but a better one would be all these new wells are metered, and those are monitored by those, you know, quite high-tech meters. 
So there is electricity data with the electricity department. So it would be possible to know. Uh, so there would be details like the horsepower of the farm, how many hours, and so it would be possible to generate that data. And that is one of the things I think is missing right now. The water department and the electricity department do not collaborate to exchange this data. So that is something that needs to be done. So my question is regarding I need to be the latest Interesting question. Right now, there are certain parts. If I, if you remember my previous map, there were certain parts where they have uh, confined aquifers, which is not directly linked with the with the rivers. Those are the ones where water tables have gone deeper because there are layers of aquitage which is preventing recharge. And those are the areas where farmers have shifted to submersible technology. But those areas also happen to be what the government has de declared as semi-critical. The way the definition works, if water tables have been declining in both the seasons, then the government immediately declares it as a semi-critical area. And then those semi-critical areas, it's not easy to get the electric farms. So there is a ban on electric farms on those areas. So also, what another check and balance would be if you have too many farms and you're seeing that that semi-critical phase is being reached, then the law would be changed. The, the law would require that farmers then go for permit. So, so at this evaluation of, of like water tables are measured every year. So, so there is that possibility of that kind of check and balance. And over time, I think farmers, because of metering and rather high electricity costs, I have seen in all the time that I have been tracking these farmers, that earlier they would often use locally made farms. And now more and more they are shifting to branded ISI marked farms. So that has been quite a big trade. In other places with more acute problems like Punjab, I find almost 100% adoption of laser land leveling to improve water use efficiency. So these are, uh, so I, I think technology plays a very, very important role and farmers respond whenever they face real water scarcity. Well, uh, what I would suggest is that those who would like to um, chat some more to Aditi, please feel free to uh, stay back. But uh, let's all uh, join in thanking Aditi for a really very stimulating. <laughs>